hate waiting. It makes me all anxious. I'm kind of like, what? when's it going to happen? Like, when are they going to start? It's the, when you invite people to come over for dinner and if you're not like my family and you're actually prepared for them to arrive and you see them and it's come and then all of a sudden you just think, when are they going to get here? Right? Um, and I find, at least for myself, um, I hesitate to start anything new because they may show up at any moment. I don't like picking up something I'm in the middle of because I know I won't finish it. I hate waiting. I hate waiting for people to come. I hate waiting for the train to arrive uh, because I live in New York City, so you just never know when it's going to show up. I don't like sitting in doctor's offices at the DMV or in just... Advent, of course, is a time of waiting. Um, we re-enter the biblical story as we read through the passages and light the Advent candles, and we remind ourselves of how the saints of the Old Testament waited for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Right? We walk with Abraham and with Isaiah and with the prophets. It's like, one day it's going to occur, and we just wait for the consolation of Israel. And in Advent, we wait for Jesus' return. Um, He's come once, but we believe he's coming again. And so as a church, as we relive the thousands of years leading up to Christmas, we re-enter the story and go, okay, we're continuing to wait for Jesus to come back. And the parable that we're looking at today um, talks about what it means to wait for his return. The passages that occur right before it, um, Jesus has been talking about what his return will be like. Um, And he's described what the destruction of Jerusalem will be like, but then he begins to use language which suggests that it's not just this terrible thing that will happen to Jerusalem, but one day God will begin to wrap up human history in um, such a cataclysmic way that all things will be made new. And then he tells this story of um, these ten women who are waiting for the bridegroom to come, and five are prepared and five are unprepared, and um, the five who are prepared are able to greet the bridegroom appropriately, and the five who are not are left out. And then he tells this story that Barbara read for us this morning. And if the first parable about the ten women waiting for the bridegroom is, are you going to be ready? This parable, I think, talks about what does readiness look like? How do you wait well? And so if you have your Bibles, turn again to Matthew um, chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. And the story is pretty simple, right? It begins, again, it, the kingdom of God, will be like a man this master going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And what essentially seems to happen is this very wealthy man gives all of his wealth to his servants. Now, um, in some of our translations, they talk about a talent, and a talent was roughly a year wages. Um, So, Five talents would have been five um, entire years of wages for a normal person, right? I mean, it's it's a substantial sum of money that's being given away. And the NIV, the most recent translation, um, has translated five bags of gold because um, they're trying not to use the language of talent, which doesn't mean as much. They're just saying a vast sum of money. So the, the master assigns all of his money to his servants and essentially entrusts his business interests to them. And it's interesting that he assigns different sized responsibilities for each of these uh, servants to manage, right? One of them gets five, 
business units to manage. One gets two and one gets one. And then he's gone for an indeterminate period, though verse 19 says, after a long time, the master of those servants returns and he settles accounts with them. So he's gone. And so the servants have to decide what to do between his presence, what to do during his absence before he returns. Essentially, how are they supposed to wait for him to come back? Because they don't own these talents. They don't own these bags of gold, these business interests they've been given. They're stewarding them. So they have to decide how to wait well for them. And it's a long time that he's gone. Now, I've said waiting is hard for me, but by the way you chuckled, I suspect waiting is hard for you too. Thankfully, because we have smartphones, we wait differently now. Like when you're in a doctor's office, you don't just have to read the old people magazine, but you can actually listen to a podcast, a sermon, or your own music, right? Um, when I travel in airports, which I do frequently, I have two to three different books in my backpack, plus my iPhone, which has music, podcasts, um, sermons, and other things, and several magazines in the desperate fear that I'll be left waiting with nothing to do. Um, waiting is really hard uh, for me and for us. And for as a church, it's really hard for us to wait too, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah, right, it's hard enough to wait for small, simple things like the Christmas pageants coming up, but we've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. It's not just a couple days or a couple weeks or a decade or two. It's been 2,000 years of waiting. And we're not just waiting for Jesus to come back, right? We're waiting for everything that he promised to bring back with him. I mean, we should just want Jesus, but let's be honest. Part of what we're longing for is we're longing for him to bring peace. Peace for us individually where our hearts will be settled and we know we are in the presence of God and welcome there. Peace interpersonally, right, where all of our broken relationships will finally be mended. Peace um, in our world as the Prince of Peace comes back and reestablishes his reign on the world so that there will no longer be hunger or thirst or longing. God will wipe away every tear from our eye. We're longing for justice to be done for those who've never had a voice to be given voice by God, right? We're longing for those, as Mary prayed in her Magnificat, for those who've been at the bottom to finally be lifted up to know that they are valued. For those who've never gotten justice to actually get justice because God will right every wrong. We're looking for flourishing to come back. We want the world to resemble what God intended at Eden, right? And that's the picture in Isaiah and in Revelation 20 and 21. All of a sudden, the world's going to be fruitful again. People are going to delight again in God's presence. They're going to be unashamed and present with him. So how do you wait for that? Because it's not just like, okay, wait a little while and it's all going to come together, but wait a decade. Now, wait a century. Wait two millennia and keep on waiting. How do we wait well? What strikes me about two of the servants who are commended about their master is how immediately during this period of waiting they engage in the master's business, advancing his interests, right? Um, it says in verse 16, the man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. And so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, right? Um, they do something. 
they invest in new businesses maybe. They buy or they're selling property, um, something. But whatever they do, do, whatever they're doing, uh, doubles their master's interests, doubles their master's charge to them. The other servant puts the money in the hole, in a ground, which is described in verses 16 to 18. And when the master turns, right, he commends the two who actually started to do something, and he condemns the one who does nothing. What's true about the servants who are commended, right, who receive the well done, good and faithful servant? Because I don't know about you, but um, I would love for the Lord to look at me when I stand in the and say, my beloved child, welcome. I would totally settle for a well done, good and faithful servant, which probably shares something desperately wrong with my own discipleship because I should really long for being his child, but I, I suspect being a firstborn Chinese American, totally subtle for like, hey, you did good. Like you got a good grade. But for all of us, right, wouldn't you love for the father just to go to you, well done. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. Um, what's true about them is they fulfilled their responsibilities. Their master goes, look, I'm giving you two, you know, whatever, um, I can't do math in my head. Seven-eighths of my estate, everything that I know, I'm entrusting to you. Take care of it for me while I'm gone. And immediately they start to take care of it, and they do what they're supposed to do, and it doubles um, in value for them. What strikes me about this parable is it's not really about their talents, per se, which is usually how we read that, right? The, the normal application of this parable is, so how are you going to use your talents for Jesus? Or your time, talent, and treasure. But what the servants get isn't a gift or ability. The master doesn't go, like with a magic wand, being I magically endow you with this ability, right? It's just a weird um, way that English works, that talent in this passage has become the way we talk about I'm talented at something. What they get is not a special gift. They don't get something that belongs to them. What they get... um, is the responsibility to do their master's work for him. They're given um, a responsibility to steward. Their master's property to take care of. Now, what does it mean for us to do our master's work? Sure, it actually may and usually will involve our gifts, our temperament, our opportunities. But what strikes me is if you make it about your talents, your abilities, and your temperament, if I make it about my abilities, my gifts, all of a sudden, I become the center of the story. And the question that occupies my mind is, how will I steward myself? How will I develop my gifts and abilities? How will I maximize my time? How will I, and it all of a sudden becomes about I and about me. And what the story actually invites us to do is to say, what's your master about? What responsibility has he given you? So participate in your master's work. It actually takes us out of the center of the story because it's not about us. It decenters us from the narrative. And I hope for all of us what it does then is it takes out the anxiety because we don't need to ask, how do I maximize my stuff? How do I become an amazing steward of everything that I've been given? Because then it all becomes about us. It allows us to reenter the master's story and the master's plan and ask us a simple question, how do I do what the master has commissioned me to do and to do it faithfully and well? And what's great, as we ramp up into um, Christmas, right, as we move toward Easter, this great season for the church, when we think about God's promises and how he fulfills them, um, 
is that we know what God has invited us to do, right? From Genesis onward, God has said, look, this creation that I've given you, steward it and make it beautiful and fruitful so people flourish. So that the garden that I established expands the whole world and we build this creation together. We know from the very commissioning of Abraham in chapter 12, you are to be part of a blessing to all the nations, so go about and do it. We know from as soon as Jesus enters the world, right, he he picks up the promise that was given to Israel to be a light to the nations, and he says, look, all of you, go declare who I am in word and deed and power, manifest what it looks like when God reigns in the life of a single individual. And as communities gather who say, who reflect this is what it looks like when God is in charge. People worship him. People care for one another. People extend themselves in mission and in ministry and in mercy. The world will be changed and wait well. Right? That's what we're about. Um, N.T. Wright, who's a, new te- a theologian, has once said, one way to think about our jobs as Christians is this. Imagine we're all actors. And um, you come to this meeting and the director says, look, we have this amazing play we're going to do. The first act is all about how there's this beautiful place that exists. The second act is how people have really screwed up. The third act is how the authors re-entered the play to fix it. We're missing the next act. We don't quite know what happens there, but we have the final act of the play, which is he wins. Everything gets put back together. Your job during this play is to improvise what happens between the time where he starts to fix it and what it looks like at the end. You know how the play is going. You know what your parts are. So we've miss, we're missing this little, this, the fourth act. Make it up as you go. But you know where it's going to end up. The king's going to reign. The world is going to look like he intended. We're going to be made to look like him. So as you improvise, make sure you end up there somewhere. What an amazing opportunity. What an amazing adventure God invites us on. How do we participate in the master's activity? We improvise. He doesn't actually say, okay, tomorrow you're going to go do this. Now, sometimes he does, right? In prayer, sometimes he's very clear. But mostly what he says is, look, I've already entered the world to fix its brokenness and sin. I've commissioned you to do something about it. And by the end of the story, it's all going to happen. Put it together. Do your best. I'm so powerful It's going to work out. You can't do it that badly wrong. I think um, as we think about what it means to fulfill our responsibilities, it means that we engage in the world, right? To do the things that Jesus is doing and to listen to the things that Jesus is saying. I was asked recently on two different um, media interviews, once with Christian Broadcasting Network and once with a radio program that's up in the upper Midwest, they were saying, hey, from, as a minister with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, can you help us interpret what's happening at the University of Missouri and at Yale and other places where there's a lot of campus unrest? And for them, they were like, it seems terrible. Students are protesting. People are resigning. And I said, you know, as a Christian missionary on campus, um, when I look at those students protesting um, and what's happening with Black Lives Matter and other things, um, what I hear most prominently and clearly is a group of students gathering together to say, we long for Jesus to come. And the interviewer's like, what? How do you hear that? I said, because what they're saying is we believe people are made in God's image. They deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. They shouldn't be afraid 
everywhere they go. They're saying everywhere people are, every person deserves to be treated as people who are valuable and who have safety and should be allowed to flourish. They don't know how to use the language, but they're using the biblical language of shalom. They're using the biblical language of justice and flourishing. I think their souls are crying out for Jesus to come, and they just don't know how to verbalize it. What I said is, you know, you may not agree with their methods or all of their message, but you won't because a movement is always kind of messy. But as a member of the church, what I hear is people longing for Jesus to come. And I just wish the church, rather than going, you know, those 18-year-olds don't quite have it down right. I wouldn't have done it that way. Instead said, you want what Jesus wants. And we've had 2,000 years to think about what Jesus wants. If we came alongside you, prayed with you, worked with you, advocated with you, marched with you, we could give you a deeper, richer, more satisfying definition of justice than you know right now. We could fill it out in ways that would be exciting and honoring to everybody involved. They would allow flourishing not just for students, but for the faculty and the administration for, as well. We could actually minimize some of the collateral damage that's occurring and actually bring us all together to something that we all long for because God has placed that in our hearts. I said, man, to me, um, the fact that they're doing without, without the church in many ways um, is a rebuke to our failure to listen um, and an incredible mission opportunity. And I said, actually, you know, I, at the University of Missouri, it was striking to me the student who led the hunger strike um, actually consulted with his pastor and his church leaders before he went about to do it and talked to medical doctors as well to assess what it would take. I said, there's a deeply spiritual movement there, and if the church would just mobilize to me, I, I said, I see such opportunity to bring the gospel to a place where people are already longing for God to make, make himself known. They were, the interviews were a little taken aback. That wasn't the response they thought they were going to get. Um, but to me, right, it's part of what God calls us to as we learn to wait, is to do the things that he calls us to do. Now, I'll acknowledge some of us are a little overwhelmed at the size of that task. As you think, well, how do I engage Black Lives Matter or Syrian refugees? Or you just think, that's too big for me. And what I want to say is that's okay. Because you'll notice when the master hands out these bags of gold, these talents, these large sums, it says very clearly the responsibilities were given based on each servant's ability is how the master assigns them. He knows how much he can invite you to take on. He won't give you a task beyond you. Richard Mao is the president of Fuller Seminary uh, for many years, and he tells a story that, you know, when he was younger, he was at some conference, and he was preaching on about radical obedience to Jesus and we need to be more radical and gotten quite excited about what he was saying himself, right? About just how world-changing we needed to be. And he said, as we went into the lunch line, a senior saint came up to him and said, you know, I appreciate what you've been saying about radical this, radical that. He said, but I want to remind you that in a nursing home less than two miles away from here, there's probably um, an older woman who's in her 80s whose most radical step of faith today will be to leave her room and go to the cafeteria to eat with her friends, but she's afraid that she will soil herself while she's eating. And that her entire step of faith today is going to trust Jesus enough not to let her be embarrassed. As you talk about radical, this radical, that, that's fantastic. Don't forget about the simple radical step for that one woman where all she's asking for today is enough continence to last through the meal. 
And he said it was sobering but important to be reminded. Um, It's not always in the grand gestures or the profound leaps of faith that God is satisfied or um, pleased by our engagement with his work as we wait for him to return. Sometimes it's the small thing that requires all of our faith but would be unnoticeable by the people around us. And what this passage seems to tell us is as we actively engage in the work that God has called us to do, fruitfulness occurs. For each of them, those two servants, what they had was doubled. And to each of them, God said the same thing, well done, good and faithful servant. What waiting is not, right, is passively doing nothing. The the third servant takes the um, bag of money, the talents, and puts them in the ground. It was safe there. It was secure. And this was not an unreasonable or unusual thing to do at the time because they didn't have very many banks at the time. So people often, if they had a small sum of their, like their nest egg, they would bury it, remembering where it was because that was the safest place to keep it. It was far safer than keeping your home. That would have been something that anybody would have done. What strikes me, though, is that by doing that, the servant doesn't have to be involved in his master's business. He doesn't have to take on the responsibility of running his master's affairs. He keeps it very safe, very locked up, very constrained, in a narrow slice of life buried under the ground where he knows where it is. He can find it anytime he needs it, but doesn't have to be involved with it. To go back to that improv play acting metaphor I used, this servant freezes on stage. Right, which is the worst thing to do if you're an actor or performer. Far better, sing a bad note, use the wrong line, but don't just stand there staring into the stage lights with your mouth open. What they actually often say in improv classes is if you don't know what to do, go to the most dangerous thing and do it because it's far better than standing there where we all kind of watch you, awkward and afraid. And let's be clear, the early church completely struggled with this tendency, right? A good chunk of the book of Thessalonians is Paul writing and saying, look, you didn't miss Jesus' return, relax. And those of you who quit your jobs just waiting for him to come back, get to back to work. If you're relying on everyone else to feed you, we're going to stop feeding you. That's not how you're supposed to wait. Do something. Right? It's the kind of cult-like activity where people like, Jesus is returning on the 25th of May. We're all going to hang out on a hillside waiting for him to come back. Right? It's profoundly wrong. The problem with the third servant is he's irresponsible with what he knew to do. Um, some of you know Alec Hill, the president of university, stepped down uh, this past spring because of bone marrow cancer. And... Um, went into treatment in Seattle, and uh, several of you have prayed for him and asked about him. He's doing amazingly well. In fact, I talked to him two days ago, and the uh, doctor or the nurse who's been working with him told the other people uh, the other people on the team, you'll never see a guy do as well as he's done again in your careers. Um, there's been almost no negative side effects. There have been um, very minimal uh, bad interaction with the drugs. I mean, the bone marrow transplant has gone swimmingly well. I mean, the doctors have said basically in 10 years, there's one doctor, in 10 years of practice, I've never seen anybody respond as well as you have. 
And Alex said, you know, what's been sobering is um, when we moved into the isolation unit where he's been for many months, um, another couple moved in as well. And he said, um, you know, Steve had also been waiting, got a bone marrow transplant, um, and about three weeks ago got the common cold and then died. This is, right, his immune system had been so wiped out by the bone marrow transplant. And Alex said, you know, throughout this entire process, I've never asked God, why me? Why did I get bone marrow cancer? He said, you know, uh, that's not the question I asked. He said, after Steve died, who lived right next door to me, in the exact same stage of life with the exact same problem, with the exact same treatment, felled by the common cold, I am asking, why has God been merciful to me? And he said, um, what has most struck me was the deeply important work now of recognizing I have to be a steward for the years I have remaining. He said, I feel so privileged to be alive. Every moment counts. I don't want to waste this gift I've been given of a second chance at life. And it strikes me, um, when you know the end is coming, when you know your waiting could be foreshortened, you act and live differently. Let me end with um, one last story about what it means to wait well. Um, those of us old enough to remember South Africa um, before apartheid ended will remember it as a country of great oppression where the government actively prevented anybody who wasn't white from um, having a vote, having a voice, having in many ways ways to live. And as apartheid continued, eventually some of the strongest response and reaction and protest against it emerged out of the church. Um, and the South African Council of Churches was often at the forefront of that, uh, often being led by Desmond Tutu, among other people. Um, at one point, the headquarters of the Council of Churches was bombed and destroyed. Now, right, it's pretty obvious at that point it's not a small group of anarchists on the side who do that. The way the only people who have enough resources to blow up a building is somebody who has connections with the government. It was the government trying to stomp out this voice of protest. Um, if not itself, then through its agents. So the leaders of the South African Council of Churches came together and saw their destroyed building. And imagine you're them, right? You're church leaders. You've seen your headquarters building destroyed because the government no longer wants you to proclaim what you feel compelled to, comp uh, to proclaim because you believe God is sovereign that he hates apartheid and desires justice and equity for all people. What do you do? Um, do you start a protest? Uh, do you rage against it? Do you weep? Do you just sit there with your mouth open, staring, frozen? Um, the leaders did something I think was so prototypically, archetypically African that I love it. Um, they began to dance. They began to sing, and the song they sang was this, Freedom, oh freedom, freedom, freedom is coming, oh yes, I know. And as they began to sing and dance, more and more people began to pick up that song. Now, if you're standing from the outside watching them, you have to ask the question, are they just wildly optimistic? Freedom is coming. I mean, the government just bombed your building. There's no end in sight to this. Do they believe that just, you know, history eventually bends itself toward justice on its own, and, but it could be a vain hope? Are they just really buying into what Marx said, right? Religion, opiate to the masses, they're comforting themselves, excellent, apartheid will go on. 
Is it just that they were optimistic people? What I love and why I think that song is meaningful is that it doesn't end with just a desire for freedom to come. The second verse of that song goes like this. Jesus, oh Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is coming, oh yes, I know. And as they began to sing, Jesus is coming, that's why we're confident about the freedom that's coming. That's why we continue to act in the face of injustice. That's why we are not discouraged when the government itself is against us. That's why we're not overwhelmed by the poverty or the death or destruction around us. That's why we will not give up. It's not just some hope for this aspirational value out there. It's a deep conviction, Jesus is coming again. And if Jesus is coming, then freedom is coming. And peace is coming. And joy is coming. And love will be made known. And while we wait, we have a song to sing. We have a message to proclaim. We have responsibilities to carry out. What does it mean to wait well this Advent? It means we stay engaged in our Father's business. It's not passive. It shouldn't be anxious. But it's joyful, as this third Sunday in Advent reminds us, because Jesus will return. I still hate to wait, but I am reminded I have something to do. And so let me pray for us. I'm going to hand it back over, and then I'm just going to apologize. I have to run out because I have to be somewhere that I wasn't expecting. And so I'll slip out as we sing. But... Merry Christmas to you all. It's a pleasure and an honor to be able to see you so frequently. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, we believe you are coming. You came and you are coming again in this Advent season. Teach us to wait well, not as people who are waiting anxiously or passively, but instead uh, with deep joy and confidence that if we merely act on the instructions that you've given you will make it fruitful. And if we act on what you've called us to do, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your master's pleasure. So we long for that day, Lord, and we wait for that day. A little bit less patiently than we might want to, but with deep hope. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.